Improving Alpha, Innovation in Investing, ESG, and Technology with Michael Oliver Weinberg is being sponsored by Alternatives Watch and powered by Vidrio Financial. For a 360-degree view of investor mandate activity across alternative investments, turn to Alternatives Watch. Vidrio Financial is the first technology-enabled service for allocators looking to harness investment complexity and make better allocation decisions. Learn more at vidrio.com. That is V-I-D-R-I-O.com. Hi, this is Michael Oliver Weinberg. We'd like to welcome everyone to the Improving Alpha, Innovation in Investing, ESG, and Technology podcast series. Today, Bill Kelly of Kaya and FDP will join us. So listeners have a high-level sense of our roadmap for today. We will start with some background, then discuss investing ESG and technology. Investors and business leaders should be able to extract a great deal of value from Bill's insight. On that note, welcome, Bill. Thank you, Michael. Great to see you again. Yeah, same. You and I have known each other for some time now, um, good good amount of time, and it's it's been really nice. Let's start briefly with how your career evolved to where you are today. Sure. So it's uh, it spans over forty years. So I I won't bore you with every uh, twist and turn, but uh, but I began early on, the very beginnings of my career as an accountant and a CPA with Price Waterhouse, which I think is germane to this last chapter, where before I really knew and understood why credentials matter, why it matters in a profession like accounting, why it matters in an industry like financial services. Uh, I think that maybe was uh, set me off on a path that ultimately brought me to Kaya. But between uh, the bookends of Price Waterhouse on the one side and and my stint at Kaya, which spans about a decade, I spent most of my career in financial services, uh, but more specifically asset management. And I was with the Boston Company, which was a wholly owned uh, institutional money management subsidiary of Shearson, Lehman, and then American Express. And the group of seven of us started a firm called Boston Partners in 1995, ran that as an independent shop, and then sold it to Rubico in Rotterdam uh, 2002. I eventually became CEO of their U.S. holding company. And that was probably my introduction to alternatives because uh, uh, before Boston Partners, Rubico had bought Weisspeck and Greer, and they were very early Weisspec in the VC private equity space. And, and I think one of their very first VC investments was a very small company at the time called Federal Express. Uh, so they had single strategy hedge funds, multi-strat funds. So that probably uh, maybe was the culmination of not only my credentialing and financial services, but introduction to alt. And then I, I'm assuming uh, that's is what eventually led me to Kaya. A lot of names from the past. Uh, yes, Wall Street, indeed. Like Wall Street, well, legendary Wall Street firms that have been sort of uh, subsumed and, and merged. Well, it's funny. This is a great segue. So this morning I was reading the FT, the Financial Times, and that that's a great segue because uh, Mike, so we'll, we'll get into this more. Mike Chen is, there's an article on the cover, um, which let's see if I can, I, I didn't, this is sort of uh, improv. Oh, here it is. Okay. So the article was uh, investors use AI to listen for the truth behind executive soothing words, cover of the FT. And the funny thing is, when I was, when I co founded Move 37, one of the things I then suggested, and that was probably 2016, was you could use you, exactly this basically, you could use AI to determine whether exec, whether company management was lying on earnings calls and things like that. And here we have. The segue to what you said is uh, Mike Chen, who I co-authored a paper on using machine learning, he's with Robico now, 
and he's doing exactly this. So um, we'll we'll get into more of that um, on 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 how that ties into uh, FDP um, momentarily. Let, let's see. Look, look. Uh, I, we keep banning these acronyms, or I do at least. Kaya FDP. Not all of our listeners will know what Kaya and FDP are, so maybe you could give the Reader's Digest version of the of, of what they are. Sure, sure. So the origins of Kaya go back to circa two thousand and one. And if you think about the uh, the origins of alternative investments, uh, the first hedge fund uh, started in the 1940s and leveraged buyouts have been a thing for quite some time, certainly uh, pre-2000 uh, timeframe. But if you think about the endowment model and organized investments and alternatives in the CIO suite, that adoption maybe outside of the Ivy League schools really took uh, a, a turn uh, toward greater diversification, say, the late 1990s, early 2000 timeframe. And, and the CFA was out there at that point for probably 40 years or so, having started in the early 1960s as a credentialing body. But they really were covering the traditional space. I think they've moved a little bit more into alts, but- but there really was no professional answer for the CIO who was thinking about allocating to a very different uh, uh, set of alternatives, and alternatives meaning investments, not alternative investments, specifically more generally, where if they're thinking about uh, equity exposure and should they get that in gra- value versus growth, small cap versus mid cap, now you could get that exposure by using options. You could hedge it via a hedge fund. You could get it through the private markets. So Kaya's origins were around trying to create a, a professional tool for both the LPs and the GPs. And and off we went. And that very first uh, class of Kaya uh, candidates had 40 some odd in it, quite small. Today, uh, post-COVID, we're back uh, to about 3,000 candidates a cycle. The exam is given twice a year. So 6,000 people are sitting for it. We now have 13,000 members in over 100 different countries. So uh, we have grown as alternatives have grown. Uh, If you look at the pie of uh, investments overall and you think about public equity and public debt versus alternatives, alternatives is less than 20% of that pie. So on a per capita basis relative to the CFA, our member base has probably grown in in a reasonable proportion to that. But what's interesting, Michael, is we look at this next turn, and we can talk more about this 60-40 dead or alive, uh, more and more people want access to alternatives, and that leads toward democratization as well. But I'll, I'll park that in a moment and finish the narrative as to who Kaya is. So, so we ran for the first probably 15, 16 years as a credentialing body. We've gotten much more uh, steeped in producing content, and that's been a big part of what we do and bringing greater transparency and enlightenment to investors uh, and GPs around the world beyond just the curriculum. But circa 2018, for precisely the reasons you cited, uh, we founded the FDP Institute, Financial Data Professional. And I probably should go back, CAIA, CAIA, Chartered Alternative Investment Analyst, just to get these acronyms squared away for the listeners. But but FDP's origins were a very simple uh, test case that we saw. CAIA does probably 300 events around the world. And ESG and climate were certainly topical and still are. But but around 2018, we were seeing more and more events where the conversation was on AI, a different AI, not alternative investments, but artificial intelligence, machine learning. And this is before chat GPT and generative AI we can touch upon as well. But most notably, if you look at the lineup and cast of characters who define the investment process, 
in the good old days, you'd have a Kaya, a CFA, maybe a PhD, uh, somebody that's got just general financial services background, but you would not have found a data scientist sitting around that table. But more and more, the data scientist was coming into the fold because of all of this alternative data. But the data scientist did not understand the concept of a fiduciary duty. They did not understand the concept of what it meant to be a thorough analyst. They could work with data sets and they were a whiz at the data sets, but they were banging away in R and Python. And there's the analyst with uh, Excel macros. So how did two of these groups uh, meet and communicate? So the founding principle of FDP was to be a communicator between the data scientist and the analyst and really work with the analyst, try to cross skill and upskill the analyst to have greater awareness, to be able to not only integrate uh, the concepts that the data scientists would bring forward, but also have the courage and the ability to challenge the data scientists too, because the old saying is that you can torture data uh, as long as you want, and eventually it'll fit the thesis you're bringing forward. And overfitting, as we know, it can be a killer to an investment process. So more recently, we brought on the Unify platform, uh, which is a platform around democratization. This is going to be a series of micro-credentials. We launched that just about two years ago, and that's been off to a very successful start just in the 18 months, two years it's been out there as well. Yeah. And what you say, I mean, and, and FDP has done a great job in terms of um, helping improve that opportunity set of data scientists and coders who are knowledgeable about fin investing and finance. And, you know, that's something, again, since since I had co-founded Move 37 and two, as far back as 2016 or so, finding those people is is a challenge where the Venn diagram intersects and you have great coders, data scientists who are also great investors and or analysts and understand investing in finance. As we all know, I mean, we could spend, you know, it's a lot easier to program an algorithm to identify cats, which haven't changed in a century than trade the markets, which are constantly evolving and inefficiencies are constantly being arbitraged away. The cat hasn't changed in a hundred years. Of, you know, let's see. I mean, there's so much to talk about. You mentioned generative AI. I mean, let you know, going a bit off script here, and, and LLMs, large learning models, but um, large, large language models. Excuse me. How do you see them evolving? How do you see them playing into FDP and, and Kaya, um, or other thoughts? Yeah, so uh, so maybe a couple of a bigger picture concepts, and then we can take it more granular. Although once we do that, uh, Michael, you're the more of the expert than I am. But if you think about broadly speaking, what defines alpha? It, what defines it is is pockets of great inefficiency, and this is why the private markets were alpha uh, machines for so long. But I would even argue that uh, the private equity space has has gotten a lot more crowded, a lot more efficient, and you can still find uh, good managers, but the separation between median and top quartile vis-a-vis uh, -vis dispersion is enormous. But then I look at the advent of this alt data. Most of it was has been created since the smartphone. So maybe the last, uh, say, 15 years or so, maybe a little bit longer than that. And it's measured in zettabytes. And it's been a while since I looked at the definition of a zettabyte, but I think relative to a byte, it's one to the 21st power, I think. It is, and it has a 20 handle on it. Maybe it's more than that, but I think it's one to the 21st power. So the amount of this alternative data is enormous, but oftentimes it's unstructured. And if you think about the basic concept of a 10K or a 10Q, 
if you and I looked at a balance sheet or an income statement or a statement of cash flow, we could probably draw some pretty similar and very quick conclusions as to what it's telling us around trends, uh, around the health of the business, et cetera. But those same reports might have fifty to 100,000 words in them, and those words are not structured. But if you can take those words, especially in management's discussion and analysis of their own business, and correlate that to what they said to the FT last week, what they said in a panel at a conference the week before, I think you can start to build a pretty strong mosaic around what is management really uh, doing versus what they're saying? So uh, the early adopters of this alt data, I think, have largely been the systematic shops and the quant shops. That's why we always felt this sat quite neatly with Kaya. And at the very beginnings, and we did not have a massive strategic analysis on this, but you could almost argue that some of the learnings in FDP could have easily have been just tucked inside of the Kaya curriculum. And I think that's true to some extent. But then if you think about just the concept of ethics, which is an important part of any credential, Kaya, CFA, and now FDP as well, the concept of data privacy, we don't have a national definition of data privacy. GDPR has been out there for a few years now, but this space is so new. I think global regulators are still trying to decide what's acceptable or not. And we're starting to see now movements toward federal regulation of AI as well. So it's still very early days. So we felt this very much, even though the consumers, a lot of the salt data are the same uh, systematic shops and hedge funds, that this had to be a separate credential. And uh, and that's the direction we decided to take. Yeah, by the way, it's funny you should say that. Literally on Friday, I spent the um, the day at, at, at Columbia Business School with the former dean or dean emeritus, Glenn Hubbard, current dean Costas Magaris is doing a great job in terms of bringing data science and um, and coding to the business school uh, as well as technology and fintech um, and and the the half of the event was about exactly that uh, d- d- data protection and date hum- individual rights to data and this there's this fabulous concept that some of the professors have come up with in, in terms of forming a data union where effectively users pool their data and have more bargaining power and leverage with with the other side, the companies that are using the data. So very topical. Couldn't agree more. And and you mentioned uh, generative AI, which uh, that I don't even think we really were talking about much before the beginning of this year. And, uh, And I've played around with it a little bit myself because I'm interested as you probably are too. And I think the power of it, it's no denying it's there, but I still think it's very early days. And this concept of, of hallucinating is very much alive and well. And I even asked him to do something very simple, which is to write my bio. And if you Googled me, you could get my bio from Kaya's website, from the many uh, speaking venues you and I attend, uh, Michael, around the world. Yep. But it was amazing how it said with conviction I had held certain jobs that I simply did not hold. So something as simple as a bio, it did not get right. So Right. And it could have just scraped that theoretically. It could have just found it in any one of a million places. Right. To your point, 99% of the places we speak have a bio of some form. So if it exactly. is simply cut and paste, right. I'll give you another funny one. I was telling my daughters um, who are, you know, like many children, maybe think they know more than they do. And uh, I said, generative, you know, I said the, you know, GPT and LMs and they can, they can make simple math mistakes. They can't even, you know, they're so primitive that they can't even think and do math as any child could. 
So I gave them an example, and the first one was right. I said, give it another one, and we gave it another one. It was quite simple, really. It was like 150 plus 480 plus a few, few numbers. Like I could have done it in my head. In fact, in fact, I did. And then, of course, the answer was wrong. And it was like it couldn't have been more simple. It was like adding four three-digit numbers. So, yeah, we're, we're early days, and in terms of – you know, some of these fears of, you know, and discussions of them taking over the world, I think um, we're a long way from that. Uh, perhaps not impossible, but not probable anytime soon. Yeah. And, and I think some of it, so much of it comes down to the data. And you talked about these large language models or a data lake that I control. And if I can create this generative AI to use data I know and trust, and that's where it's drawing its conclusions from, that I think I stand a much better chance of getting reasonable to maybe very good outcome versus having this mass pool of the internet and Twitter and God knows whatever else they're pulling in. I think there you're probably inviting uh, perhaps more risk uh, than the system is is ready to uh, to manage the current state. Yeah, I want to. Uh, so this is a good start, starting discussion on technology, but I want to shift back to something you said a few minutes ago, which is about you, you sort of alluded to this. It, I'm a huge believer in the um, the Democrat de democratization of alternatives. And I think that that's where the future growth in alternatives will be. I think alternatives are largely mature for institutions. I've been, you know, largely institutional over the past 20, 30 years. Um, and then within the last year, I sort of shifted to private wealth. And one of these reasons or, you know, was was because I think that's where the growth and alts are. And that's where I think the most exciting investment opportunities are. Curious to hear what your your thoughts are on that and 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 how that I mean, obviously, I, that that I would think should bode well for Kaya particularly, but also FDP. Yeah. And, and our unified platform, too, because that's meant to help educate the RIAs, which uh, probably don't have the time and inclination because most of them are probably in their 60s with a very busy practice. So they think they're going to sit down for a high stakes exam like Kaya uh, or even the CFP if they're not already one or the other versus trying to fill uh, knowledge gaps, and that's what we're trying to accomplish there. But, but I think with the under the broad heading, Michael of democratization, I think like so many things in life, it's complicated. And I think if you said to me, uh, yes or no answer, do we have to move in this direction? I would be forced to say yes. Uh, but then I would try to quickly add a caveat. And the caveat, well, first, why do I say yes? I say yes because. Uh, our parents' generation, and certainly my dad specifically, worked for the same company his entire career, retired when he was younger than I am now, and got a paycheck in the mail every two weeks indexed to inflation. He didn't have to worry about wars in Ukraine or what's going on with Hamas and Israel or what's going on with inflation. Uh, none of this was a worry of his because somebody took all those risks on and promised him a defined benefit payment. For us today... We've got a 401k plan with kind of pedestrian options, uh, all index funds to a very large degree. And our employer will throw a little bit of a matching contribution and say, it's up to you to now create your own retirement plan. And if you don't save enough, if you don't invest correctly, if you don't rebalance uh, on a periodic basis, uh, the outcome is owned by you. There's nobody to bail you out. I look then at what's happening, just broadly speaking, uh, in the equities markets and in the fixed income markets. So in the equity markets, uh, capital formation and value creation is happening in the private markets full stop. And 
as a result of the GFC and Messrs. Uh, Dodd and Frank, the banks are not lending anymore. So the home of lending is in the, the private uh, debt market. So we as investors have got to get access to that. But but how we can avoid buying the median manager, which is undifferentiated, who's going to do the due diligence for us to know that I'm buying a quality company or investing in a quality company? These all take a lot of effort, a lot of partnership. And if I'm the retiree under defined benefit plan, an institution has taken that on for me, given the the commingled nature of a defined benefit plan. So, so I think that economically and where we are uh, as a society, we have that broader diversification. But but how we get there, I think, is a very difficult and challenging road. Yeah, look, you again, you hit on so many points that resonate with me. Um, you know, I've been in, you know, again, over the 20, 30, over the 30 years I've been investing, it's funny because, or it's it's sad, actually, I've, I've worked at these, you know, world class, I've had the fortune of working for these world class Wall Street firms. And like in my, it, it's, a, it's the same thing. It's always been, of course, 401k, because it's within the last 30 years, and DB largely died longer ago than that. And or at least on Wall Street, certainly. And, um, and the, the, the plan options, I, again, I've been among the most sophisticated investors in the world, fortunately. And the plan options in all these 401ks, it, it, they're these sort of, yeah, either, either sort of high fee, low returning mutual funds or index funds, but no, you know, few, if any, really almost no alternatives. And it's ironic because I'm working at some of the world's more sophisticated firms or most and, 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 and providing services and investments to the world's most sophisticated investors. So I, I, I and, and I might argue, you know, to your, you mentioned private credit, like I might argue there's a structurally higher return in private credit, even if you don't have the alpha, but just from the beta, because to your point, they're doing what banks can't do and mm-hmm. banks are unable to lend. So I might argue, you know, even just giving 401k participants the, a, an average private credit fund might generate a higher return than than what they have access to. Yeah, I would agree. And uh, duration risk is more or less uh, neutralized because you've got a, a, a coupon reset. You're better positioned in the capital stack. Uh, you've got better collateral uh, and hopefully professional underwriting uh, if if a fund has decided to make this investment and you're you're investing Kari Passu uh, with them. But I think maybe to tie both of these together, though, Michael, when I think about the origin of, of this disruption, TradFi to DeFi, uh, that I can envision a world where uh, it's going to have to be done probably with, with a permission blockchain. But if you're long a particular security, public or private, and I want it and you're looking to sell, why why can't you and I transact? And I think the answer should be yes, and there's a blockchain for that. And if you look at, I think it's both KKR and Hamilton Lane had done registered funds with the SEC on the blockchain, and they both have already, I know KKR has done a private fund on the blockchain where the reference asset is the same Cayman nav you could get if you went in direct. But, but I think this blockchain technology, I think sometimes it uh, it doesn't get the storyline it deserves because we have a tendency to talk about Bitcoin, the the cryptocurrency as opposed to Bitcoin, the blockchain. I think this blockchain could be a very, very powerful tool and maybe be a way both around due diligence and greater access uh, for the investor. But I think the balance we have to strike there is that I, investors too often want liquidity on demand. 
And we have a way as an industry of giving them liquidity on demand. And I think that's a mistake. I think we've got to try to get the investor to think about the concept of long-termism, because even left to their own devices with an S&P 500 Vanguard fund at a handful of basis points, they're trading in and out of that on too regular basis. And I think we've got to have very serious conversations with them about the duration of the liability side of their balance sheet. And if they're 25 and saving for retirement, in a liquid fund or a non-liquid fund, they should not be trading that on a regular basis. They should look to be broadly diversified, uh, limit the volatility, limit the drawdown risk, and they can have better risk-adjusted returns over time. But but back to this blockchain uh, technology, I think that could be a pretty powerful underpinning. And if you think about the world you and I grew up in, the whole concept of the specialist network. If you and I own 100 shares of IBM, that's not liquid. You can't go into IBM's headquarters and rip a painting off the wall that has the equivalent value of 100 shares of stock and say, hey, this is my piece. Somebody has created a liquid proxy for that. And I think the next turn of the screw is going to be perhaps through the benefits of blockchain, being able to create some form of a liquid market and maybe less liquid uh, securities. Yeah. So again, I mean, not I. So so many interesting points. And again, we all, you know, we have limited time. We could spend hours discussing the blockchain and, and liquidity. But um, one fear, though, I have on that is and, and actually, Kaya, you and your colleagues were kind enough to publish my paper about a year or so ago that, you know, like, for example, with, you know, this notion of um, fractional ownership and, you um, you know, um, again, fractional ownership of assets traded on the blockchain. One of my fears on that is what, you know, that what you're going to have happen is the usual sort of thing where investors buy in into some market frenzy or hype like this AI boom, and then they end up overpaying and then it goes down. And then to your point, there's short termism rather than long termism. And then the assets down and they're they they end up being desperate sellers. And then, you know, you have smart alternative managers, which again are good for the alternative investors, uh, who come in there and pick up the, you know, the assets at distressed prices at a fraction of book value or net worth. And then, you know, they they've sort of lost on these illiquid assets. I don't know what I, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, but yeah, no, I, I don't know uh, what the answer is, uh, but but I th I think that there's been, there's been this private market regulation that uh, has been widely criticized by most and maybe rightfully so. And the SEC has a mandate here in the U.S. to protect the investor, and and it's a lot easier to protect the investor with more rules and regulations than it is by educating the investor. I think we need to do more on the education side. But I think ultimately, too, if I look at a lot of the uh, the GPs and these trade bodies that are up in arms over this private market regulation, uh, if you talk to any one of their members who are the GPs, they'll recognize and fully admit that more and more of their future cash flow is coming from the retail side of the house, not the institutional side. And you said as much earlier, Michael, as well. And I think if you want access to those funds and flows, it's going to come with more regulation, full stop. Because you could argue the institution with eyes wide open should be sophisticated enough to understand what they're doing. Uh, I think if you ask many high net worth individuals to describe cash on cash return versus IRR, I don't know if they can do that. So I think that we've got to make sure that if you want access to those assets, 
Uh, I think transparency, maybe greater degrees of liquidity uh, all come into play. But I do agree with you by by taking any asset, IBM from way back when, or real estate or private equity, and creating a, a liquid proxy uh, is dangerous. Uh, and it's got to be done with a tremendous amount of foresight. And we saw what happened with uh, with Blackstone and, and BRE, which I think they've largely have put that behind them now. But uh, but if you smell smoke in a movie theater, or worse yet, somebody yells fire from the back row, you're not going to sit in your seat and wonder if it's true or not. You're going to you're going to hit the street and decide from the street if uh, if there was an issue or not. So I think that we see this uh, this crowding effect around these trades, where if uh, if it's an interval fund and five percent of the quarterly liquidity sleeve is hit, I think all of a sudden people say, you know what? Maybe I'm going to make my decision from the outside. I could always come back in probably at a cheaper opening price. So, so there's a lot that we have to get right. But tucked into all this, Michael, is that we have to get right the concept of long-termism. And if we could solve for that, uh, whoever does it should get a Nobel Prize. Yeah. Well, so I, I agree with your conclusion. I, I do want to hit, though, on private fund rules because I've been on the board of AMA multiple times and uh, currently on their global investor board. And, and we are one of the multiple parties that are litigating that private fund rule in, in, the, in the Fifth Circuit Court. And my contention, though, to you would be like, I'll give you a great example. I mean, um, you know, it, 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 for example, if you look at roles I've had wearing, um, in, in, in including in both private wealth and institutional, so institutional for pension beneficiaries and private wealth for small investors, one of my roles was to deal with managers and use our collective bargaining power of these individuals, whether they're beneficiaries or uh, indiv- uh, of pensions or just private wealth uh, investors, and you know negotiate certain things, terms, fees, liquidity, transparency. And you know, I would argue that you know that was certainly in the interest of those beneficiaries. Those terms were in the interest of those beneficiaries and/or private wealth investors. And moreover, you know, like look at transparency. You know, that was something that was valuable to my team of 15, 20 people that was international and/or national. But you know, again, if you're the average individual investor, if you have the transparency of that portfolio, to your point. If if that average person is unfortunately doesn't know the difference between IRR and cash flow return, you know cash on cash return, you know if you show them here's the here's the list of investments, it, it's not going to be terribly meaningful anyway. So I, I tend to agree with um, AIM and the various organizations. I'm totally a proponent of fair play and fair treatment, and completely understand the need for regulation, but. I'm not sure the way the current rules are proposed are in the best interests of all parties, beneficiaries, investors, GPs, LPs. Yeah, and and you probably know the rules uh, better than I, but uh, when this was coming to a head probably back in, I don't know, uh, August, September timeframe, I did go to the SEC website and you can look at the comment letters. And I just went through and anybody that looked like it had an institutional name, uh, a public pension plan as an example, I read their comment letters and invariably they were on the side of what the SEC was proposing. And what does that tell us? Maybe something, maybe nothing at all. But I think what it does underscore, Michael, is that the, the gray area that defines fiduciary duty is exceedingly wide. 
And uh, and we we all should recognize that. And Jack Bogle, uh, founder of Vanguard, talked about serving two masters. It's very, very difficult to do because as a GP, you've got shareholders, you've got employees, you've got partners, but you also have clients. And, and that's going to cause conflicts of interest, full stop. I think we've got to be exceedingly transparent and recognize that I think if you gave the LPs truth serum and asked them about the current state of play around transparency, they would say it's got to improve. And those letters are case one. If you look at what's happened with this GP continuation funds, by and large, the LPs are not happy with this. NAV lending and current marks, uh, the LPs, and we talk to them in private settings, Chatham House rule, they're generally not happy with the state of play as well. So I think this has been going on since the beginning of time. It's never going to be perfect because, as I mentioned, these conflicts of interest. But I think the more transparent we can be, the better industry we, industry we have. And I think there's always room for more transparency. Maybe what the SEC was proposing was too far the other way. I'm just not an expert on that. But I think it was telling, just looking at some of those comment letters by some of these big allocators, what their views were. And, and I learned something from them. Well, let's go back to what you were talking about a few minutes ago, the uh the funds, the the um, non-traded REITs that prorated redemptions. I mean, to me, I find it so ironic uh, because, you know, if, if we look back to alternatives, particularly hedge funds post-GFC, post-global financial crisis in 2008, to me, the lesson that every, you know, great hedge fund learned or every, even lesser ones, was you know you have to match the liquidity of the underlying assets with the liquidity of the fund, and that's got to be aligned. Because what happened was pre-GFC, you had all these hedge funds where it was you know there were only inflows, 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 and returns going up, up, up. And then of course the GFC hit, and you had all these hedge funds with assets that either were illiquid or became illiquid, and that was misaligned with the liquidity of the underlying funds. So here I find it somewhat ironic that 15 years later, you have this massive growth in these um, in these uh, liquid alts where inherently, you know, you're buying the longest duration there is illiquid real estate with monthly liquidity that you're giving investors. And, you know, my view is... I think it's a suboptimal structure, but if you're going to say, again, this becomes increasingly great. If you're going to say it should, it should be allowed, I, I think you need to do a better job educating wealth managers and clients that, um, you know, in a run on the fund or the strategy, these are going to become illiquid. But I'm curious to hear your thoughts. Yeah, so I, I think two, two examples. Uh, BREIT, which was an interval fund, 5% uh, liquidity and 20% uh, uh, over the year. And then uh, going back maybe uh, quite a few years, maybe circa 2008, 2010 timeframe, there's a product uh, broadly sold into a lot of the, the wirehouses called the endowment fund. And maybe not so much with BREIT, but maybe was the case. Why not invest like David Swenson? Don't you want to be like David Swenson? Well, when uh, the good times are rolling, we all want to be like David Swenson. But when things start to seize up, very few of us have the staying power and the longevity and the understanding of investment horizons that David Swenson has. And with the endowment fund and also with BREIT, both funds ended up having uh, more than their fair share redemptions. They couldn't be met. Both funds got gated. And I think it was the end of the endowment fund, uh, BREIT, uh, as as best I could tell, has, has put this behind them. But what it does to the long-term strategy, I don't know. 
I don't think there was anything inherently wrong with either fund. But when you're selling this uh, for smaller slugs of money, and I think the endowment fund, you could get, could have gotten in and access to some of these managers for as little as 50000 when the institutional ticket size might be 10 or 20 times that size, uh, you're dealing with a very different uh, mindset of an investor. And I think to give this access, and this gets back to what we talked about earlier with democratization, there's a lot the investor has to understand, particularly the long-term nature of what they're getting into. And you could almost build a case, rather than create an interval fund, you should almost have the surgeon general's warning on the side of, of, the, right. uh, of the offering document to right. say, you cannot, under any circumstances, get your money out for at least five years. Right in in a in, in a run on the fund or the strategy or in a in adverse times when when times are good the funds making money no one needs capital you're probably fine I I agree in other words look there's no doubt and the argument that the GPs will make is look it's it's clearly stated in the terms sure it is but it's embedded in footnotes and disclaimers and wealth managers and clients aren't always the most sophisticated they're not institutional I, I'm 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 with you it should be really prevalently stamped up. See, that I think would be a better change to the private fund rules than what's being proposed. Yeah, I think that would be very interesting. And back to my blockchain scenario, uh, it, it doesn't solve for what, what exactly we're talking about, which is the underlying assets are illiquid. But if I have thousands and thousands of shareholders in this fund that's invested in illiquid under uh, holdings under private equity investments or real estate, why should I not recognize that I might have a thousand that want to be in and out more frequently than that. And if I can create a permissioned area, bid-ass spreads will probably be very, very wide. Uh, there's got to be some level of transparency. And if you want to transact at that level, the fund itself is not selling anything. And this is what happened, I know, with the endowment fund and maybe with B-Read as well, that as these redemptions came up, there was no standing liquidity. They had to sell, sell, sell. And it reached a point where they sold everything that was liquid or they didn't want to start selling these trophy properties at a crappy time uh, in the marketplace. Uh, but if if two parties want to create li liquidity between themselves, I as a, as a third party investor have no interest in trading at all. Uh, I'm very happy with that because the fund is not raising any liquidity. And again, if, with BREED, if I were a long-term investor, I would have been very unhappy that all this liquidity was created. Uh, and uh, and I'm probably suffering as a result of that as a as a third party shareholder who did not want liquidity in the first place. So I think it gets back to long termism, and we can't magically create liquidity out of illiquid assets. And to do that, uh, other than perhaps the model I laid out is a futuristic thought on blockchain, I think it's near impossible to do and to, or to do well. Yeah, I, I think you make a lot of valid points there. Um, let, let's shift. We we we've been talking about. Uh, um, investing and, and um, the, the current market and trends. Um, let, let's talk about ESG. Uh, where, if, if at all, or how, how does that fit into CHI and FDP? You mentioned ethics, and I mean, obviously, that's part of, of governance and just the right thing in, in general. But let, let's hear more about that. Yeah, so I, ESG is another one where I think it's uh, a term that uh, a lot of folks, I think, uh, like uh, the Blackstones, the Blackrocks of the world, are starting to not use uh, so much anymore. But I think maybe for the wrong reasons. And I was never a big proponent of the term because there's so many risk factors tucked inside of the E, the S, and the G. And if I want to be very good at one, 
then I'm being less good at the other. So if I'm shutting down a coal plant and I've done right by the E, but I've nuked the economy of, uh, of an entire state or city or town and put a lot of people out of work. So, so I think that's just a simple example as to all the trade-offs happening in this space. But I think oftentimes when people talk about ESG, I think they talk about climate. Uh, and again, it's interesting and to focus on regulation again for a second, Michael, uh, the SEC came out with uh, some regulations for ESG probably about two years ago and the comment period uh, is now up. And I think they were theoretically going to come out with definitive regulation in the month of October. I don't believe that they did. Uh, it's still probably uh, on the drawing board. But here again, I did not go back and read all the letters, but uh, uh, there were over 15,000 comment letters to the SEC on this particular matter. So a ton of comment letters. But interesting, and all your listeners, even the ones outside of the US, know that there's only 50 states in the union here in the United States. There was a letter written by 24 state attorney generals, very critical of the SEC getting involved in the space in the first place. And you could probably guess with great certainty who those states were and who was on the other side. So it just shows the tremendous divide as to what ESG really means, what climate really means. I think ultimately, uh, I think we all have to look at the science and uh, it's getting warmer. The polar cap is shrinking. Uh, we're seeing more extreme uh, climate events. hundred year events are happening almost every year as, as we sit here and speak. I see, I think there are two active volcanoes in play uh, right now uh, that I just uh, heard on the, uh, the news coming into the Amherst office today. So there's just a lot of things going on with the climate. But a lot of it comes down to economics and uh, and building the infrastructure for renewable energies is very, very hard to do. Uh, the wind uh, blows the hardest at sea, sun shines the brightest in the desert where people are not. So building the infrastructure and the grid system to get these uh, this renewable energy to where the people are uh, requires a substantial and continuing investment. So I see uh, people are probably, I feel almost certainly in the US, there's been a little bit of a backlash. Uh, 2030 uh, a date that everybody had in mind, I think that's certainly not attainable anymore. I think it's interesting the COP is happening this week or next in the UAE, uh, in Dubai, which I think is kind of interesting. And having just been in Riyadh myself just a couple of weeks ago, uh, they've got this uh, this Kingdom 2030 initiative where they're trying to rid their economy uh, from dependency on oil by 2030. So a lot of interesting things going on. And, and maybe I'll sum this up, Michael, by saying there is only one ozone layer. And it doesn't know if a U.S. citizen, a Russian citizen, a Chinese citizen or an Indian citizen or somebody from the emerging markets has belched CO2 up there. So I, I think this is going to require... Uh, a, a global initiative at a time where nationalism is in play. Geopolitical risk has probably never been hotter than it is uh, as we sit here today. So uh, so I, I'm probably less optimistic uh, that we're going to find a fix in the short term. Uh, medium to longer term, we have no choice. I think we've got to move more uh, aggressively in this direction of certainly climate and then more broadly speaking, uh, ESG as well. Shifting gears because we're running out of time. What what advice uh, aside from getting Kai and FDP or unified credentials do you have for for allocators and investors, if any? Well, I think that uh, stay curious, stay involved. I think to to talk about uh, issues that concern you in a small closed Chatham House uh, 
uh, room is not going to serve uh, the better good. There's organizations like uh, like Kaya, like the Standard Board, like MFA, like uh, AMA, uh, uh, where there are forums where your voices can be heard, and using some of these forums as uh, as ways of getting all sides together: regulators, asset owners, asset managers, legislators, to have better long term outcomes. I think is going to serve us all well. I think all of the necessary vessels are there. I just don't know if, as an industry, we're doing enough to collectively bring this forward. Great. Thank you, Bill. Um, look, we'd like to thank you for that super interesting discussion, uh, sharing your most valuable asset with us, your time. Uh, we hope listeners have a better appreciation for what one of our more thoughtful academic leaders is thinking about and how they may benefit from this. Uh, this is your host, Michael Oliver Weinberg, hoping you join us again for our next episode where we speak with another thought leader who will provide insight into improving alpha via innovation, investing in ESG. Uh, thanks, Bill. Thank you for listening to Improving Alpha Innovation in Investing ESG and Technology, sponsored by Alternatives Watch and powered by Vidrio Financial. With Vidrio Financial Asset Managers, endowments and foundations, pensions, family offices, insurance plans, OCIOs, and sovereign wealth funds can cut through the complexity of asset allocation to reduce costs, mitigate portfolio risk, optimize compliance controls, and improve performance analytics. Interested to learn more? Contact us today at vidrio.com. That's V-I-D-R-I-O.com. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Vidrio Financial or our host, Michael Oliver Weinberg. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding investment planning.